Hey, one more thing before you go. We're going to have a conversation with the son of a prominent Arabic linguist from Cairo who at four years old was left with his grandparents in post-World War II Germany, was neglected through his childhood and shuffled across Egypt, Germany, and London, and was an isolated and depressed teen. He survived. He became a world-renowned surgeon specializing in oncology and nutrition. He conducted research at Harvard, Massachusetts General, MIT, Brigham and Women's, UCLA, and Syracuse University. He discovered groundbreaking advancements in nutrition with regard to cancer and other ailments. I'm your host, Michael Hurst. This is The Thing About Overcoming the Odds. My guest today is an author, a podcast producer, and living the retired life in Florida. Welcome to the show, Dr. Michael McGee. Can you share with us a little bit about uh, about yourself? Uh, it's a long journey, uh, and it isn't until adulthood that one begins to appreciate what one's upbringing, uh, how one's upbringing contributed or contributes to one's adult behavior in general. And so my story begins in 1944 uh, when I was born in Cairo from a biracial family. My father was Egyptian. He was a professor at, the, at Cairo University. And my mother was German. And uh, they had met uh, uh, 10 years previously when they were both uh, overseas students studying in England. And with the war, uh, World War II coming, um, so they got married in 1939 and moved for, um, they left England. Uh, my mother suggested that my father should go to, to Germany and meet his in-laws. So um, he decided he would go to a quick crash course in German at Heidelberg University. And this was 1939, and obviously my father looks oriental, uh, curly hair, and uh, is, has a darker complexion than, than ordinarily. And so when he was walking through the streets of uh, uh, Heidelberg, the brown shirts who were uh, molesting people uh, nabbed him and put him in a uh, sort of prison and uh, stripped him of his clothes. Of course, he was circumcised because he was Muslim. That's what they do traditionally there. So that proved to them that with curly hair, uh, and circumcised that he was Jewish until, of course, their, their sergeant came into the room and said, uh, hey, guys, this is a, a guest student in Germany and he's married to a good Aryan woman. So they let him go. But uh, he has always told me that, uh, that the people who come to cheer you one day will come also to see you hang the next day. He was quoting... Napoleon. So um, we, he went from Germany, met his grandparents. My grandmother fell in love with him. My grandfather was, had his reservations, which I could never understand until I became a father myself. And then they went to Egypt. And uh, because he was the youngest guy on the faculty in, uh, at Cairo University, they sent him off to the 
form a department of uh, Arabic uh, and a teacher training program in, uh, in Sudan. Now, at the time, Egypt and Sudan were one big country under British rule. So he went there and he performed his duties and created a, a department following which they brought him back to Cairo. Uh, and his main thrust in life throughout was to, uh, to enhance modern standard Arabic. Now, as a little side uh, trip, uh, there are about 18 Arab countries uh, with a population of uh, 360 million, and they all speak a dialect of Arabic. And they all speak their own dialect, and they all speak Quranic dialect. But there was no such thing as modern standard Arabic, which could be used in broadcasting, which could be used in iPods, which could be used in, in uh, newspaper print, and so on and so forth. So his main emphasis throughout his entire life, writing books and teaching and so on, was to uh, enhance and introduce modern standard Arabic. And his last assignment when I was about 10 was to work at the United Nations uh, to foster this program in the Middle East. Now, that's a fast track of my father's life. I was born, as I said, in 1944, and uh, I had very happy memories of my first four years of life. And those who say, well, you can't really remember things. Of course, you don't remember day by day, but you do remember events. And gradually, you can string these together. They are reinforced by photographs. They're reinforced by family um, stories, what I call war stories that are related at, at the uh, dinner table. And since my father was the eldest of uh, 11 children, we would have family lunch uh, on Fridays, which is the, the same as uh, the, uh, the European Sundays, that is their Sabbath, we would all go to my grandparents' house and we would all sit around the table and um, there was a whole range of ages and I was among the young, youngest. And my grandmother, who was always engulfed in a halo of garlic, uh, loved and kissed me and hugged me. And, and um, she didn't speak Arabic. She spoke the dialect of the village where she was born in Upper Egypt. And uh, I loved teasing her because she'd smile. And she had a beautiful smile. But she had one or two teeth missing, front teeth missing, which really endeared me to her. But we sat around this huge family table with everybody talking at the same time and everybody uh, uh, gesticulating with food in one hand and pointing to the other hand. There would be arguments going on and my father would be sitting next to his father who was the head of the family and he would supervise this entire uh, family discussion while my grandmother would circle the table encouraging her children to eat this and eat that, and she would heap stuff on a plate and, and would uh, encourage them to eat. 
So that I had a very positive, warm childhood memory. But then suddenly, in 1948, my, we all packed up, and I wasn't sure where we were going. We weren't told. And we were, we were told as children by my mother. Uh, so, so my parents spoke English to one another. Uh, I spoke Arabic to my sister, and my mother spoke German to us. So we were told that you're going to go and visit your other grandparents. We said, what grandparents? We have grandparents here. We love them. We, are, we, we have everything we need here. But so we were hauled off in uh, September of 1949, um, and we landed in Hamburg. And we had to travel there on a troop ship, a British troop ship that was taking demobilized soldiers from India back to England, and then uh, another troop ship from England uh, that was loaded with um, uh, tanks primarily to Hamburg. And when I first saw Hamburg, it was absolutely desolated. There were bombed out buildings. There was absolute disaster. I just could not believe this was this was really real horror, and there was a couple, an old couple, standing by the dockside, and we were introduced to them as our grandparents. And then my mother left us there with them, and she disappeared, and she went back to England. I know that now, but at the time we didn't know. And these grandparents, who were in their 60s, suddenly had a four-year-old and a seven-year-old girl who didn't speak German, who weren't accustomed to food, the German food. At that time, it, there was rationing in Germany. Um, our meals would consist of uh, potatoes and root vegetables and a piece of fish. It was not not what we were used to, the uh, sumptuousness of uh, the food we were served in, in, the, in Egypt. And uh, they, in Egypt, you know, we were loved children. Here we were an elderly couple trying to raise these two young kids. And it was done by corporal punishment, by order and discipline, leaving a very uh, harsh um, wound, you know, psychological wound uh, in me. Where was your father at this time? Well, that's a good question. On the way to Germany, he got off the train in Manchester and he had accepted a position in the University of Manchester to set up the Department of Arabic. Uh, now, there is a key to this uh, behavior, namely, uh, when he was six years old, uh, and he was born in a village in Upper Egypt, his mother died, and his stepmother evicted him from the village, and he had to make his own way in Cairo, uh, educating himself uh, and uh, living uh, in the Al-Azhar uh, madrasas. And he said he then realized 
that the key to getting on in life was education. And so when in 1939, he decided he, he was going to marry my mother and then they would go back to Egypt, she had not finished her education. And so he promised her that as soon as he settled matters in Cairo, he would bring her back to England for her to finish her education. And this promise hung over our head in every argument my parents had, and some were really nasty arguments by modern standards, um, because she did not want to live in that uh, uh, Egyptian milieu, and he wanted her to accept his Arab culture. So that was a conflict of interest. So as soon as the war was over, he found this position in England, and so this is where he went off to England, and we as children were dropped off at my grandparents in Germany, and my mother then went back to England to join him to finish her education. But I think children this day and age understand when parents have to do these things. It is a matter of, of explaining things, of telling them things, of, of uh, <coughs> letting them know. And throughout the five years we lived with my grandparents in Germany, I completely forgot Arabic and I became a German schoolboy. And when we had no letters, we had nothing. I mean, I forgot about my mother. And when she suddenly came back, and she came and said, oh, I'm going to take you to Manchester now. I said, no, I'm staying here with my, grand with my grandmother. She is my mother. And she became the psychological duo in my life of having a secure motherly type figure that could be cast as my wife, and then there would be the uh, other woman who would provide you with uh, pleasure and so on. And this is the basis of the podcast. Uh, in the podcast, uh, we pick up the story where we, are, we go, my father suddenly dies and we are left stranded in Egypt and my mother manages to get us out of Egypt. Uh, my sister goes to Heidelberg University and I go to Manchester and finish school there. And from there I go to uh, University College Hospital in London uh, where my medical education begins. So what, what inspired you to be a, or a doctor, a surgeon in specific, actually? Well, I was inspired by people like Albert, I, uh, I, Albert uh, Schweitzer, who wrote uh, his biography. I read that, a child version of it, obviously, when I was young. And uh, I had appendicitis when I was 11, so I was in all wonderment. Amazing how they can make this feel sick, make you better, and I want to do the same to other people. And so first and foremost, I had to get a medical education, which I think is vital. And then secondly, you specialize in surgery. And 
what generally happens when you go to medical school, you struggle through the basic sciences, which you cannot understand. Why am I going to all these classes when I want to see patients? But once you pass the medical sciences, they put you into the clinical stream, and there you begin to see human beings, and you pick up the language, the body language, the attitude, the way that your seniors and your teachers uh, are conveying uh, how to conduct yourself uh, as a doctor. And this is a, a process of metamorphosis that goes on over a period of four years. And as you go through medical school, you go through all the different rotations, hematology, orthopedics, uh, internal medicine, and so on. And in my particular case, I gravitated towards surgery. And I had a wonderful mentor who, uh, when he realized I wanted to do surgery, took me under his arm, and I worked uh, as acting intern for him uh, on a couple of occasions, uh, which raised my status among my peers. Uh, and I was actually right at the table, at the operating table. Uh, I was responsible for his 30 patients. And it was a great feeling that one could help other humans. So that I used to tell my children later on in life, Imagine they pay me to go and have fun. That is how I saw my surgical career. What, what do you specialize in in your surgery? I specialized in oncology, surgical oncology, primarily because uh, I came across a lot of that when I was at UCLA and uh, at uh, the City of Hope National Medical Center. Uh, there were some very challenging oncologic cases. And patients generally did well after an operation. However, they did not do so well physically. And I realized what is lacking in this mix is not the surgical techniques that we have uh, improved, but the mixture of care. In the mixture of care, there has to be nutrition. We need to build up a person because when they get sick, they become anorectic, they lose their appetite, and when they don't eat, they start consuming their own body. So to try and get a, a professional label in that area I uh, applied to the human nutrition program at MIT. And whilst I was a junior professor at Boston University, I was all, that was um, when I was in Boston, I also went to MIT and sat in the lectures. And I realized that the, by default, I had been signed up for the PhD program. So for three years, I was in the morning going to lectures and in the afternoon doing my elective operations and in the evening doing my emergencies. Thinking back to that now, Michael, I cannot imagine how I had the energy to do that. But I did. And after three years, 
uh, I got the PhD not that it meant anything other than I felt it was the union card I needed to have an authority in providing clinical nutrition to patients. That's outstanding, actually, especially to be able to accomplish all of that through through that time period. And I agree with you, um, and I respect your position as an oncologist as well as a nutritionist. Um, both of those particular specialties actually saved my sister's life and mine. So thank you. When I got into the nutrition field, clinical nutrition field, um, it was a brand new field. The catheters that are that I use this day and age, the solutions and so on, we had to spend hours inventing. I was a consultant to a catheter company to try and show them how, what kind of catheters we needed to feed intravenously, what kind of catheters we needed to feed uh, orally, and so on. And then, of course, to develop the solutions. Uh, when I first came on the scene, um, the main solution used was just glucose and amino acids. And I felt, well, we don't eat candy all day long, we do eat fat. So I introduced the intralipid, the white, the white stuff that you now have inside your solution. And we did a lot of studies with that. So for, to do that, I needed a research lab. So I then developed a research lab, got NIH funding. And once you have NIH funding, you can proceed to do both research. Uh, so my life consisted of operating in the morning, doing research in the afternoon, evening, and at weekends. You're a very driven man. Yes, and that you can see comes from my father, who who went through a similar scenario. And for many years, I used to ask myself, well, if my mother dumped us in Hamburg, where, where was my father? Why didn't he object? Why, why didn't he say anything? And I realized through reading letters and so on and so forth that since he was evicted from the village at the age of six, he had to make his own way in life. He didn't think twice about his son being left with his German in-laws. You know, it's interesting. It's interesting how our fathers and our past kind of uh, change our own future at times. Yes, yes. You know, it gives us a new direction into it. My um, my father died. A little off subject, but my father died of cancer. He was uh, thirty-nine years old. His esophageal cancer. Um, I was 15 when he got sick. I was 17 when he passed. So we're very familiar with um, with with oncologists and something that what you do. My sister, my stepfather also passed from it. My sister got cancer twice and she beat it all the time because the fantastic oncologist. That's why I say kudos to you for, for taking that route. I have an affinity for oncologists um, and I respect that. And I respect you taking the nutrition approach as well. Uh, I had an allergic reaction to the rheumatoid arthritis drug they had put me on, Humira, and it actually put me into rheumatoid cachexia, and I went from 165 to 100 pounds. It was an oncologist that actually recognized it and um, brought me back from that 
And, um, you know, I'm back up to like 145 pounds now, which, you know, is not close to my 165, but it's not going down from 100. So, you know, and he he did that through nutrition as well as, you know, other other methodologies. So outstanding. I'm I'm impressed with that. I really am. Um, And it's unfortunate that our fathers previous to us sometimes put us on a a path that we learn, but also a path that um, I, in my particular case, I chose not to follow my father's path. His his cancer was, uh, he developed, he, I'm divulging a little too much here to the audience, but my father was an alcoholic as well as having the cancer. So, you know, I chose a different path from my father and, and because of that, and I tried to overcome that, not pass that on to my children. So anyway, after you had picked your specialty and you developed all this, you you created a, a journal, did you not? That Yes. At the time, uh, I was invited to travel to various countries. I remember and to lecture about what we were doing in the States. And I remember going to Brazil and uh, giving some lectures there. And people said to me, senior people said to me, do you know that we cannot get any papers published in the American press? The American press will not not, uh, print foreign papers. I found that astounding because no, we... We in the States do not have a monopoly on knowledge, information. And they were treating very similar patients as we were in the States, but quite differently. So obviously, we had stuff to learn from them. So I went back home and I decided to start uh, the International Journal of Nutrition. And it grew and continued to grow. And so then I had an editor. So now I was tied up all evenings from five to seven working on that and then at weekends uh, and this um, journal um, was bought by Elsevier and it's now electronic and uh, I made sure I remained editor until such times that my life with my other writing uh, required more of my attention. And I selected one of my prodigies, who is now the editor, and I'm the emeritus. That's it, yeah. I I understand that you you kind of created a new life for yourself with the writing books. Yes, yes. Well, you know, um, my wife um, came sick. She developed um, um, dementia, and she was in her fifties, and she developed an early type dementia. And so at that time, I realized there's no point in my going to work and leaving a nurse at home with her when really I should be with her. So I retired. And my dean said, well, you can't retire. You have a lab and you have a new grant from NIH. And I said, well, I'm sorry. Here's an instance where family takes priority. And uh, so we came down to Marco Island. We loved it here. The beaches were wonderful, and uh, I took care of her for five years uh, down here at Marker Island. And then after five years, uh, we were visiting in-laws in Syracuse, where she comes from. And she had a psychotic uh, breakdown, and she was then institutionalized. And then my life became one of commuting. Syracuse and Marco, 
too fortunately, but I say this very reservedly, she died two years ago. I do not know how she would have survived in this COVID crisis where nobody could go and visit her. I understand. I'm sorry that you um, you guys had to go through that. We're familiar with Lewy body dementia. My wife's father passed of that. We took care of him for the last 18 months of his life. So I empathize with you, sir. Yeah. It's Thank a very you. difficult journey. So Thank you. Um, did that, um, was that a catalyst to you, to your, your writing your books, your journey with books? Uh, I've always been a talker. And uh, in fact, when I was uh, a youngster, a toddler, I needed, they used to call me the storyteller. There's a term for that in Arabic, kayati. And I always related stories. Uh, I had to get used to, when I came to North America, to the clipped, quick, short sentences. <laughs> I'm not sure I've, I've quite mastered that yet. Yeah, the uh, distinction of, of a dialect across the United States is interesting nonetheless. So I started writing. I decided for me to become a writer, uh, I really had to go to a writing school. So I went to, uh, at the time when we were living in Syracuse, I went in the, uh, to Cornell. And there was a teacher there in, in the Department of English. And Jennifer Bryce was her name, or is her name. And uh, she saw me, and I attended one of their writing courses, and she decided, uh, you have some promise, you have some interesting stories. And she took me under her wing until such time she, when she said, well, you have learned sufficient basic tools that you really need to go to a writing program. And so I applied to various writing programs. The one I really wanted to go to was Bennington uh, College, because that was relatively close to Syracuse. And they accepted me. And uh, that was absolutely wonderful. You know, until that time, I was totally and utterly immersed in science and surgery. I read at night to fall asleep. Uh, but I had no idea that there was another world out there of books and literature and stories now podcasts and so on. So I attended uh, Bennington for two years, uh, then got a master's in fine arts. Now I felt I had some sense of authority to, to call myself a writer. And I have been collecting all my stories. And essentially, they're coming out in book form and in podcast form. When I had my book ready, I met Rebecca Seitz, now, that was a fortuitous and very welcome meeting. First of all, personality-wise, we got on well, just like dogs and cats. Uh, but she is a woman who is highly intelligent and who could see from my manuscript that this could become a wonderful podcast. And at the time, I didn't even know what a podcast was, as many in our generation don't know. But that is the future. So she prepared, she took my manuscript and she prepared these wonderful episodes. And then she had a brilliant idea, uh, namely, not to have me read it, which would be very boring since I have a very laconic uh, voice, 
but she found voice actors who took on the many different characters. And she would tell me, oh, good heavens, we now have 15 voices. Oh, we now have 35 voices. Now we have 60 voices. Now we have 90 voices. And this would increase to about 90 voices. We were satisfied. And then we went through a period where we were listening to uh, people sending in their little um, voice cast. And I would say, yep, this sounds exactly what I, I'm looking for. And she put together, she and her husband put together a wonderful, wonderful podcast called Making the Cut. It's a really unique approach to podcasting, actually, because it is. what it reminds me of is like an old-time radio show. Yes, and I grew up on those uh, when I was in Manchester as a, as a youngster. Yes, yeah, yeah, and when I was younger, I'm not as I'm I'm not that far back, but I'm up there a little bit. Um, I listened to I listened to those kind of things on the radio, uh, and I enjoyed those those kind of old timey radio shows. So yes. that's what it kind of uh, the uh, the sound of it. So obviously, we'll have some information at the end of this podcast in regard to listening to that. But as I listened to it, um, my wife and I listened to it. It it was your story but it was expressed in such a way that it was compelling it was compelling enough to move forward to the next one in based upon how the characters were presenting the story yes we were Brilliant. very we were very lucky well i was very lucky to have uh, met rebecca cuz she is very uh, brilliant is the word in able, being able to find uh, voices and being able to juggle all these voices and get them all together. And this was all during the time when COVID was coming on the scene and everybody was afraid of everybody. And honestly, I don't think I, I mean, there are storytellers on podcasts where they'll read you a book, but they'll read you the book. And it's one person typically reading you the book. So the uniqueness of this was brilliant and is brilliant in the fact that it creates a story that you can get immersed in while you're listening to it, not just listening to it. You, you can kind of get involved, which is yes. cool. You got another, and there's another unique aspect of the, your life story or listening to your life story on that, which again, we can get into it in just a little bit here. But in fact, I want to save that to the end because it's really kind of a special little thing that you guys have paired up with, with wine and cheese and stuff while yes. you're listening. So you can make it, yeah. An experience, not just yes. a, not just a podcast, but an experience. Yes, that was another sign of brilliance on her part. So, in this particular story of your life, did it start out as a book? Yes, I have a full-length manuscript that I'm looking for an editor to um, publish, uh, and uh, so if, if there are any editors listening out there, uh, give a youngster a chance. And uh, maybe you will not be sorry. So the, the, you guys took the book. Rebecca yeah. took the book. And yes. then she basically basically created a, well, I was going to say a radio program script. Yes, but it's yeah, but, not, it's not precise, because of the nature of the two different uh, things. It is, um, it is not as nuanced as the book is. And obviously, if you're going to move along and keep uh, people's attention, she had to create this uh, wonderful uh, script that uh, made each episode 
you know, I have neighbors. I live here in, in, in a gated community, and I have neighbors who greet me and they say, I am living precariously, I'm living vicariously through your podcast. <laughs> I don't know what they mean. But, <laughs> or they would say, you know, there's a judge here who's retired. And he would say, oh, I wake up every Tuesday morning at 2 to hear the latest episodes that you guys have just released. So uh, it is fun to, it was a fun enterprise. Uh, it was a fun uh, project to do, and hopefully it, not the last. How did it feel to listen to other people play you? It was it was interesting. You know, I I am sufficiently d distanced from it that I feel I am listening to them. But you know, there's something very uh, strange going on. And that is, as you listen to it, what is actually happening is that you are rewriting your own history. And uh, uh, Noah, who is the person who represents me, is a wonderful actor. And we were so lucky to get him. Noah James. Yeah, it's interesting. Did, did you help select that actor, or was that... Um, Rebecca and her husband that did that? Uh, Rebecca did the first cut and then she would send me these uh, tapes and say, what do you think of this? What do you think of that? And then we would decide jointly. That works. So you took an active role in helping to cast your own life. Well, yes. Uh, we had preordained pre it by the manuscript, well, by the book. True. Correct. Correct. It's preordained by that. So each one of these characters, just to kind of give a quick rundown to our listeners. Each one of these characters are a character in Dr. McGee's life as he grew up from childhood up through adulthood. I have not listened to all of them yet, so I haven't got to that portion of it, but I've listened to a good portion of them. And um, so far, each episode kind of carries you forward to the next, and it creates your life in a very interesting manner. Something, yeah, something we can empathize with and something I, I get. I'm sorry, go ahead. When we're young, we all make mistakes, so we do things we wish we hadn't. And people have said to me, oh, you're very brave to put all this out. And I tell them I'm an old man, you know, what, what the heck, if it can help somebody. And it's amazing how much empathy I have received, whether it's at the local Starbucks or the doctor's office, they would say, oh, I've been listening to it and, you know, can't wait for the next episode to come out. I've even had people calling me from Argentina saying, did this really happen? <laughs> I said, yes. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, that's really amazing. Actually, that was it. The podcast is kind of inspiring because you do, I say again, I haven't watched the end of it. I know you the ending of your story and we can, you and I talking about it here, know a little bit of the ending of your story. So it gives it a little bit away, but you know, it allows uh, you to be part of your journey, which is really um, kind of cool. Um, and I think one of the the really um, unique concepts of this as well is you guys like pair each episode, I think, with wine yes. in a Bousset collection out of the Napa Valley. Yes. So you, you, you kind of, can you tell me a little bit about that? 
Well, that is uh, the brainchild of Rebecca Seitz. Uh, the pear pot uh, is exactly an entity whereby you can select the wine that goes with the particular mood that will be uh, conveyed in the episode. And I found that very, very attractive. It's a great idea. It's a wonderful idea. And I think Rebecca did a marvelous job by uh, coming up with that. And you guys, you guys recommend the wine? Of which we wine do you use for that episode? Yes, yes. So the, <clears throat> you can get the wine delivered to your home. And yes. then um, basically um, you sit down with a glass of wine and you listen. Right. What more could you want? <laughs> exactly. Maybe a little hors d'oeuvres on the side, you know, get, yes. get comfortable, put your feet up and, you know, kind of, uh, kind of enjoy. Right. So tell me, how do they find your podcast? I, uh, Rebecca, I'm, I'm the uh, vice president of the Marco Island Writers. Uh, we have a writing group here. And Rebecca was invited to give uh, a presentation of her. And uh, she presented herself as an agent. And so I was curious. So I called her up and I said, hey, I have a manuscript here that I've just finished. I'd, be, uh, I'd appreciate you looking at it. Uh, and fully being expecting her to say, no, I'm too busy or whatever. And um, that's how it started. And within days, she was calling me up and said, this would make a wonderful podcast. Well, kudos to her. That's, yes. that's for sure. Yes. Um, and I'll have information in the show notes in regard to how to, get, how to find that podcast. So we'll, we'll do from there. Can we talk a little bit about the books that you've written? Yes. Yes, I have. Uh, the books that I thought were fun to write and that were fun to write at the time I wrote them were the 50-odd medical books that I wrote that uh, propagated the science we had developed. But when I look back at them now, they're not, they're not really very interesting anymore because it's been replaced now by this very exciting uh, trilogy. Uh, and the trilogies are Roots and Branches, which is the first book, which is, goes into great detail, detail about my uh, family, family's origin in Upper Egypt, uh, and then uh, my life in Europe, uh, etc., until the time that I leave Egypt to go to London. And then the second book, Making the Cut, um, which is the name of the podcast, the book is called uh, Mastering the Knife, is uh, my 10 years of medical school in London and all the uh, events and occurrences there. And then the third uh, book is um, A Surgeon's Tale, and that is nearly finished. Now, if you go to my website, we will be starting very shortly uh, building the characters that are involved in these three stories. Obviously, obviously starting with making the characters that appear and making the cut, namely my mother, my father, who my grandparents were, because my grandparents came from what is now Poland. So migration has been going on all the time. And uh, so we will build the characters there 
to a greater degree. So are you, is your plan to have the other two books turn, also turn into a podcast? Uh, that would be uh, wonderful, yes. Why not? That's very interesting. Um, do you have any advice for anybody going through what you went through in your life? Boy, that is a very difficult question. Um, I think the biggest wound that I had to come to terms with was uh, being abandoned at age four. People, uh, you know, at age four, you can't quite figure out how the other, your other half, because you don't see your mother as an entity, you see her as part of you. You haven't made that, you haven't reached six yet, okay, where you can, where you can consider them as two separate entities, yourself and your mother. So to lose that half without being told why, and then being put in an environment where you didn't speak the language, you didn't eat the food, and where you, you were disciplined uh, by coercion uh, was so alien. That's a big trauma that I suffered as a child. Uh, and then again, I think I had already imbibed from my father um, that to get forward in life, you had to you had to strive and to achieve. No one was going to do it for you. You're going to have to do it yourself. And so in Germany, I did uh, become a stellar student because I felt I had to prove something. When your mother leaves you, you feel you've lost your worth. And now you're on your own. You can either capitulate or you can say, no, I'm going to prove to the world that I am somebody. And then again, whatever culture you are planted into, the same mechanisms occur. And when I was in London and I has, was offered to go to Mass General for an elective of six weeks and I went, it became very obvious the minute I landed at Mass General that this is the environment where I wanted to be, where people strove, where people were successful. It, from there on, it's like winding up a toy and, and it'll go on forever. What I get from that is that individuals that are in the same position or have, are faced with the same type of position um, just persevere. And, yes, never and give up. Never give, never give up. up. You've got the strength to move forward and that you can overcome. And I think that's a an outstanding journey that you've taken and that you were on and where you have evolved from and that people can take a lesson from, from you. Um, and it continues. It continues. As life. Life does continue. Life does move on. So you have a website, correct? Yes, <laughs> yes I do. I had to think that for a moment. <laughs> Your website is michaelmcgee.com, and people can go there to check out your books and yes. some background on you. And I, I believe and some that the, of the stories and some of your stories, so they can probably find them there. For the podcast itself, I will put information in regard to uh, the podcast, Making the Cut, in the show notes as well. So we'll have a link to that so people can um, uh, follow up and listen to your story and listen to your life story and get some wine and relax. Oh, while listening. That sounds wonderful and participate. Yeah. So thank you very much, Dr. McGee. It was a pleasure to meet you. And again, thank you for sharing your journey of your life and your accomplishments. Thank you.
Thanks for joining us in this conversation. You can find more about Dr. McGee, his podcast, his books, and his next projects on my website, www.beforeyougopodcast.com. That's www.beforeyougopodcast.com. You'll also find it on Dr. McGee's website at michaelmcgee.com. That's michaelmcgee.com. And his unique podcast can be found on any of your favorite listening platforms. I will have links to all of those in the show notes and on the website. Thanks for listening to this episode of One More Thing Before You Go, a unique conversation about life. If you like our show and want to know more, check out our website at beforeyougopodcast.com. That's beforeyougopodcast.com. Tell your story, share your expertise, contribute to the blog, and subscribe to the newsletter. You can find us as well as subscribe to the program and rate us on your favorite podcast listening platform. And one more thing before you go. Have a nice day, have a nice week, and thanks for listening. One More Thing Before You Go, a unique conversation about life podcast, is a creation of One More Thing Productions, established 2010, all rights reserved.